Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. On today's show, famed referee Howard Webb, who's now in charge of the Video Assistant Referee Program set to debut in MLS this summer, explains how VAR will work, including the calls it would and would not have changed in the controversial Real Madrid-Bayern Munich Champions League quarterfinal. Well, it certainly would have impacted on the game, for sure. So the most obvious situation would have been the equalising goal for Real. Mm -hmm. The play which made the game Mm 2-2, when the ball was played up to Cristiano Ronaldo, who was clearly offside. All that and my thoughts on soccer, coming up. Take one. Here we go with my three thoughts on soccer. First up, Zlatan Ibrahimovic suffered a serious knee ligament injury last week, playing for Manchester United in the Europa League. My first thought is simple. I hope Ibra plays again. He's 35, but he's still one of the best and, yes, most entertaining forwards in the sport today. I do think he will play again, and I also think this injury makes it a bit more likely that Ibra comes to MLS. Man United has already seen lately that it can do fine without Ibrahimovic and may not need or want to extend his contract there. Meanwhile, the LA Galaxy has already offered Ibra a deal that would make him the highest paid player in MLS history. While the Galaxy might have to wait a few months longer than it originally wished, I would argue that Ibrahimovic, even post-surgery, is worth waiting for if you're an MLS team. Take two. Next up, Mal Pugh, the most coveted teenager in U.S. women's soccer, announced last week she was turning pro before ever playing an official game at UCLA. There's a lot to this story, including something new. Pugh has some real leverage on where she ends up signing. European women's teams like PSG, Lyon, and Man City are spending more money than they used to and are interested in signing Americans, including Pugh. Washington has the NWSL's top allocation spot, but Pugh doesn't want to play there, and as of Monday, Washington wasn't entertaining any trade offers. Instead of rolling out the red carpet for Pugh and trying to change her mind, Washington owner Bill Lynch lashed out privately to his fellow NWSL owners instead of asking why no U.S. national team players want to play for him and his team these days. This saga could last a while, but it's also reflective of a positive development. U.S. women's players have more power these days at the club level. Take three. Finally, this week's interview is with famed English referee Howard Webb, who recently took a job in New York in charge of the Video Assistant Referee Program for the Pro Referees Organization, which oversees MLS games. Webb goes into fantastic detail with me on how VAR will work, not just in MLS, but in leagues around the world and, quite probably, in World Cup 2018. Webb looked a little different when I met up with him. He's got a beard that makes him look a little like Sean Connery. But Webb's authoritative voice remains. I think you'll really enjoy this interview with Howard Webb. Our guest today is the only person ever to referee a Men's World Cup Final and the UEFA Champions League Final in the same year which he did in 2010. Howard Webb was a Premier League referee from 2003 to 2014 and a FIFA international referee from 2005 to 14. He's also a former sergeant in the South Yorkshire Police. He recently moved to New York City to become the manager of video assistant referee operations for the Professional Referees Organization. Howard Webb, thank you for joining me. My pleasure, Graham. Good to be here. Welcome to New York. 
Uh, I know you moved here fairly recently, and there's lots to talk about here, but I want to start with your new job. Uh, that is running the video assistant refereeing for Pro, which oversees Major League Soccer. VAR is set to start in official MLS games later this year. But I want, if possible, if we could just start by having you explain to our listeners here, what is VAR and how will it work? Well, first of all, thanks for your welcome. I'm delighted to be here in, in the USA um, and uh, looking forward to a successful time um, in the next few months, years. Um, it's just a thrill to be part of the, the soccer scene here. Um, VAR, yeah, what is, it, what is it? What does it stand for? What does it mean? Um, it stands for Video Assistant Referee. Um, I think we've had a conversation around the world for several years now about ways that we can help match officials in, in soccer make make better calls and avoid clear and obvious errors. And much of that debate has focused in on a possible need for technology. We've seen it in other sports. We've seen how it's been integrated into lots of other sports to varying levels of success. But overall, I think most sports have embraced it and seen it as a positive. And and people who analyse and talk about soccer have have often asked the question, can we do a similar sort of a thing? That's particularly um, uh, happened when... We've seen mistakes being made, big mistakes, in, in particularly in big games, and, and the conversation comes up again. I think what we have seen as well in, in a, uh, the recent time is, is the use of some technology in, in certain parts of the world, such as goal line technology, and we've seen that's been a positive addition. So I think people's hard line, some people's hard line view on technology has, has diminished a little bit. And we've, we've reached a stage where the International FA Board have acknowledged the fact that there's a, I guess, a thirst out there in the soccer world for this to be explored, for the possibility of video assistant refereeing to be to be trialed, to be looked at, to see if it does actually enhance the game. Does it make the game better? And can it be implemented in a way that doesn't change the basic way that the game is played? And don't forget, that, that is what appeals to so many people, the fact that, that soccer or football has high tempo, it has ebb and flow, not many stoppages. That's seen as, as quite an appealing thing to, to many to many fans. And I think most people who are in favour of video reviews uh, are not wanting that to change. They understand that the referee makes lots of decisions in, in a game and the game does continue and it flows and, and has high tempo. What IFAB agreed to do um, was to draw up a protocol. IFAB being the International FA Board, right. the people who basically um, revise and, and define the laws of the game and periodically they get together and they they look at recommendations from different federations and different confederations in the continents and and they decide w- which amendments would enhance the game and and they're, they're sort of like the the guardians of the laws of the game and, and they're not fifa no they're not i mean they are um represented uh by members of fifa mm-hmm. um or, or members of FIFA are represented on, on IFAB. Um, traditionally, um, the, the makeup of the, the IFAB has been um, the four British home nations, be Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, and, and England. Um, they've got a historically significant position in the game, I guess, as they were the people who first drew up the laws of the game back in the 19th century, and, and that's recognised um, by the fact that they have representation on, mm-hmm. on the International FA Board. They have four votes on there, and FIFA have four votes as well. Okay. And to change the laws of the game, um, you need a, a vote of six out of the eight to, to get something through. So clearly, without, without FIFA support, 
without the four votes from FIFA, then something doesn't get changed. So right. FIFA play a really significant part on, on that, uh, that organisation. Traditionally, they've been a conservative, uh, with a small c, a conservative organisation, and with good reason, because uh, the laws of the game um, have developed over a long period of time. The game is pretty successful in its current guise, and they make sure that they test everything thoroughly before they decide to, to make a change. It's the same with video technology. We're in a position now where the IFAB have said, okay, we will draw up a protocol to see if, if this does actually enhance the game, if it makes it better. And countries, federations, leagues around the world that have got an interest in implementing video technology can buy into this protocol, but it's one protocol for all. We, you know, everybody's going to work to the same to the same um, kind of regulations, and, and that's where we are now. So we're in the the initial implementation stage of the protocol within this testing phase. Mm -hmm. So we saw a few weeks ago Australia went live with their uh, video assistant refereeing project under the same protocol that we're working to. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we're going to see Germany go live uh, later on this year and we're hoping to do the same here in, in MLS soccer. We're hoping to, to go live at some point in the second half of the season after All-Stars. Mm -hmm. That means we have a period of training and testing. Right. Some of that testing has already started. We've done some uh, offline games. Mm -hmm. We've done some live games in USL, in United Soccer League. And we've also done some live uh, games at something called Generation Adidas mm -hmm. Cup, which took place in Texas last week. Okay. Clearly, there's a big training impl implication. We, we, we've got a group of, of referees. The VAR, the Video Assistant Referee, has to be a current or ex-ref. Mm -hmm. And we're looking at utilising our top guys, supplemented by some of our development guys. Hmm. And we're training them up. We're training them on how to use the system, how to, how to um, stick to the protocol. We're making sure they know what VAR does. VAR is not here to, to, to check every decision that a referee makes. It can check situations uh, that have a match-changing influence that are match significant. So those four situations which are listed in the protocol are when a goal is scored, uh, all the goals that are scored in games covered, covered by VAR will be checked. And the, and the VAR, the, the video assistant referee, is checking for any offences that take place committed by the attacking team in the build-up to the scoring of that goal. So that would include an offside, for example. Okay. It would include an offensive foul, so maybe the, the attacker who scores before he does actually pushes the, the defender, clearly and obviously. Okay. Um, that would be intervened upon. And also, for example, if he puts the ball in with his hand. Mm. But remember... We're only looking for clear and obvious situations, not those subjective situations oh. that, that could go either way where people have a difference of opinion. We're talking about those situations which it's felt there's a clear and obvious error. Um, we're, not, we're not asking the VAR to say, was the decision correct? We're asking them to ask a different question in their mind. We're asking them to, to ask the question, was the decision clearly and obviously wrong? Okay. Um, and and that's, that's the threshold. We don't want VAR intervening on everything. We don't want it to change the basic way the game is played or the way it's officiated. It's here to make sure that officials don't make clear and obvious errors. So an example would be of a goal being scored wrongly would be, cash your mind back to 2009, Thierry Henry scores a, uh, doesn't score a goal. He, he sets a goal up for France against Ireland right. in the Stade de France. And to set the goal up, he, he controls the ball with his hand on the blind side of the ref and he, he handles the ball quite clearly and obviously there's yeah. no subjectivity about that that's really clear and he then crosses the ball and William Gallas scores that is a situation that would be quickly rectified by the video assistant referee so that's goals 
It also checks penalty situations. Mm -hmm. So when a penalty is given, the video assistant referee will will check the play on a replay, and we can talk through the actual process in a, in a few moments. But he'll check or she'll check the the replay just to see if that penalty call has been made uh, incorrectly. If it's a clear and obvious error by the referee. So an example would be. Uh, a an attacking player commits a, an act of simulation. Mm. He dives, he cheats, he throws himself to the floor under no contact. But because the, the referee is in a position that doesn't afford him that view and the referee feels that actually it was a penalty, he awards the penalty. Well, that is checked by the video assistant referee and that can be rectified because mm. it's a clear and obvious error. Equally, if a penalty is not given, if there's an appeal for a penalty and play continues, the referee doesn't feel that he has enough information to give the penalty, feels that maybe it was a fair challenge and waves the appeal away, play continues, the VAR can check that play and if that replay reveals a clear and obvious error and in fact it should have been a penalty kick, then the VAR can recommend a review to the referee okay. who can then award the penalty. And um, that would involve either um, not allowing the game to restart should the play that happened after the, the penalty appeal, uh, should it have led to a ball being out of play. Okay. Or um, if the ball is still in play after the penalty appeal, several seconds later, hmm. if the ball is in a neutral area of the pitch, then the referee can stop the game there on the advice of the VAR who recommends the review hmm. and the uh, the play can be looked at again by the referee in the review area at the side of the pitch and he can award a penalty. Okay. Um, so that's penalties, that's goals, red cards as well. Mm -hmm. Red cards that are given, they're all checked by the VAR and red card offences that aren't given. So for example, a really bad tackle that, that would yeah, that would be considered serious foul play that if that's not recognised on the pitch, maybe a yellow card is shown for that tackle. If the video clearly shows the tackle is worthy of a red card and mm -hmm. it's a clear and obvious error not to give the red card, then the VAR can recommend a review and we go into the same process where the on-field referee can, can check the play again on a screen at the side of the pitch, make a determination of what the right card is and, and follow that decision through. Okay. And then finally, mistaken identity. So that's where a yellow card is shown to the wrong player, a red card is shown to the wrong player, that can be checked by the VAR and very quickly that can be rectified and the, the correct information given to the, the on-field ref. So kind of like in a nutshell, that's where we are. So the key things to remember are only checks four situations, penalties, goals, red cards and mistaken identity. The threshold is clear and obvious mistakes or serious missed incidents, things that happen off the ball that aren't seen by the referee. And again, we are, we are looking to to check if the, not if the play was correct, we're, we're checking if it was clearly and obviously wrong. Okay. And it's all about minimum interference and maximum benefit for the game. And unlike other sports that have had maybe some different rules for review, managers are not allowed to th use challenges or throw f challenge flags. Why was that considered? Do you know? Or, or why was that not included. Yeah, I think it was considered from the conversations that I've had with people um, at, uh, at IFAB. Um, it, was, it was not included in the final protocol draft. Uh, I think on the basis that everything gets checked anyway. Yeah. So anything of a um, significant nature gets checked by the VAR. Um, so, yeah, it was felt unnecessary, really. And I guess, you know, th there's other issues as well. Um, it potentially, it could be used tactically, um, by, by coaches, it right. was felt that it, the system would work better if it was under the control of the match officials who were 
obviously totally neutral and independent, mm-hmm. um, rather than by some coaches. Um, and and you know, the bottom line was, you know, we're comfortable that everything of any significance will be checked anyway. So why do we need a, a coach review? And these four areas are obviously game-changing situations, all of them. Um, what's in place to prevent delays stoppages on the field that just take too long yeah and that was that was often something that was um that was brought up by the people who don't don't want cbdo technology brought into the game that would slow the game down what i said a few moments ago um about the intention being the minimum interference for maximum benefit runs all the way through the var protocol so in many situations when a, a call is made or not made that is checked nobody will see any sort of difference on the on the on the play because yeah. that's all happening behind the scenes it's all all happening whilst play is continuing or maybe in a natural stoppage and of course the level that we're going to train our guys up to and, and we're in that process now means that whilst we we are mindful of time we the, the key thing is accuracy yeah rather than speed but we are going to to make sure that the the guys are efficient as well. You know, these are top-level of officials that we're dealing with, guys who can quickly recognise situations, quickly check them in an accurate way as well. Mm-hmm. But, but you know, the speed of their checks is something that's important. The efficiency, whilst not sacrificing accuracy, most of the time that can happen behind the scenes without anybody even noticing. There are the odd occasion when a check might just take a little bit longer because we need to get into to, to various other angles to make sure that we're not missing something. Um, that otherwise would be uh, possible to see on uh, uh, maybe a third or fourth angle. So we are going to, to, on the odd occasion, have to hold a play. So, for example, we have a penalty appeal. The penalty is not given. The ball gets cleared. It goes out for a throw-in. That is being checked after the appeal. It's checked right through until the ball goes out of play. We might just have to hold that throw-in for a few seconds until we can we can check whether or not that was a clear and obvious mistake. And, and we, feel it's, we feel it's a price worth paying mm. uh, on those few occasions to, to come to better decisions, to, to avoid clear and obvious errors. Mm-hmm. Um, so you might see that. You might see referees holding the fingers to, the, to their ears, receiving information mm. from the VAR uh, in relation to whether the check has been completed or not. And then we will see some, um, some small delays when there is a review taking place because that that needs the referee to to either speak to the VAR right. and take some information from him. If it's a factual matter, whether you know a player's offside or not, that information can be received by the referee and can be acted upon there and then without the need for the for the on-field referee to go to the referee review area at the side of the pitch. If it's something that's more of a subjective nature, a serious foul play tackle, a penalty appeal, the, the referee is, at the moment, the referee is likely to go over to the referee review area to take a look at at what's happening and what's happened and make a judgment so yeah that will take um, some seconds of course mm-hmm. when we see these big incidents in many cases it takes time anyway right when you see a penalty with the reaction of players when you see players um, who have been subjected to serious fouls there'll be some some element of injury in that time quite often so a lot of the time the delay won't be much more than what we we would have seen without VAR but of course on some occasions that will happen and again I think it's seen as a um, an acceptable consequence of ensuring that clear and obvious mistakes don't happen. We had a very controversial Champions League quarterfinal second leg between Real Madrid and Bayern Munich 
How would VAR, if it had been in place officially in that game, how do you think it would have impacted some of the big calls that were made or not made in that game? Well, it certainly would have impacted on, on the game, for sure. Um, so the, the most obvious situation would have been the, the equalizing goal for, um, on the night for, for Real. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the play which made the, the game 2-2. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the ball was played up to Cristiano Ronaldo, who was clearly offside, you know you could see that from the the camera angle. Um, he was well in advance of the the offside line, and the assistant didn't recognise that on the night. That sort of situation, because it led to a goal being scored, that would have been reviewed. So, so the the ball ends up in the goal. There's no flag. Obviously, on the night, the referee gives the goal. Yeah. Um, if that would have been uh, with the use of VAR, then the uh, the VAR would have checked the scoring of that goal from the time that the attack starts to the scoring of the goal. There's a window there where uh, he will check, and he'll check for any offences by the attacking team, which include offside. Yeah, and he would see quite quickly that Cristiano Ronaldo was offside when he received the ball. It was in it was in within that attacking possession phase, mm-hmm. the attacking phase of play that led to the goal, and therefore. The referee would probably stand with his finger to his ear, take the information, make a TV screen signal, and and disallow the goal. What it wouldn't inter- impact upon is the second yellow card for for Vidal. Really? Um, because second yellow cards are not covered within the protocol at the okay. moment. Okay. Interesting. Um, only direct red cards. So second yellow cards are not something that the VAR would would intervene upon. That decision would stand as it as it was on the field on on the night. What about potential offside for? Uh, Bayern's goal or the own goal uh, from Sergio Ramos or the other Ronaldo goal where Marcelo passed to him and they were both beyond the the, the back line of yeah. Bayern. Yeah, so again, we're looking at clear and obvious errors only. So um, when you've got a situation which is clearly and obviously wrong and, and for offside, you've got two, two factors to bear in mind. One is offside position mm-hmm. and the other one is um, not only the position, but does that player have, have an impact on the play? Does that player interfere with an opponent? So it can get more complicated. Um, but again, if, if the VAR feels that both factors are, are complete, that the player is in an offside position first and foremost, and that that player has either interfered with play by touching the ball or interfered with an opponent by being in the line of sight or maybe preventing an opponent from being able to play the ball or making um, a challenge for the ball with an opponent or attempting to play a ball that's close to him um, whilst in an offside position. If those factors are complete in a clear and obvious way, then the VAR will intervene. If there's, if there's not clear and obvious uh, met in those criteria, then, then the VAR won't get involved. So, for example, mm-hmm. if it's not clear and obvious from the camera angle that we have whether or not a player is offside then the on-field decision remains so the authority is with the on-field officials and if the flag stays down and we don't have clear and obvious evidence that it's wrong from the video available and, and mm-hmm. the broadcast feeds are the ones that we get so there's no secret angles right. there's no special cameras there's, it's, it's all open to the viewing public who are watching the broadcast feed then um uh, if it's not clear and obvious, then then we leave it to the on-field officials. Okay. And I only had one other very specific thing I wanted to ask you about from a game, which was the recent game between Manchester United and Chelsea, when 
Man United scores the first goal, Rashford finishes. But in the lead-up to the play, as United gains possession, Ander Herrera appears to use his hand. It was not called. The goal stood. I guess I ask because you're talking about everything in the sequence leading up to the goal being reviewed with something that far back that occurred in the defensive half for United. Would that be included in the review? Yeah, and... You have to forgive me. I've not actually seen the play. I've heard about it, um, and I, I saw a still shot of the of the hand mm. on social media. But um, but again, if that situation is considered to be a clear handling offence by by um, Herrera, wasn't it in this yeah. case? If the VAR uh, deems that to be a clear handling offence, and that then leads to the attacking possession phase we call it the the phase of play that leads to the goal then yes that would be reviewable okay. my understanding is yes it was but i haven't seen it myself so okay. i don't want to speculate but but yeah if that's if that's the, the action that starts the attack if that's the action that breaks up the the attack by the opponents and and then creates the counter attack then yes that would be something reviewable so we don't talk about keep ball situations within a team's own half we talk about when the attacking phase starts okay and again part of our job is to to train our guys to be consistent in recognizing when that phase starts um and we'll do that in the next months by looking at many many situations and coming to a, a collective opinion of when the when the attacking phase starts there will be some sub- subjectivity in that um mm-hmm. you know for example if a, if a, a ball gets played forward it gets maybe intercepted momentarily by an opponent does that break the attacking phase if it goes straight back to the to the team who had the ball originally mm-hmm. probably not in that situation but again the, one of the difficulties is that every play is slightly different and we need to try to be as as consistent as we can in recognizing when the attacking phase starts but my understanding from that situation was that the handball pretty much created the the attack from which they scored right. so as soon as that happens the VAR would would maybe say something like possible handball, knowing that should it lead to one of the factors, one of the situations that VAR can check, a goal, a red card, um, a penalty kick, then we can go back to that and check. If it doesn't lead to those things, then there's no need to worry about the the, the possible handball because it was inconsequential. If it goes out for a throw-in or a corner, yeah. we don't then go back to look at that, uh, that handball because VAR can't check throw-ins. It can't check corner kicks if a corner kick is given wrongly it should be a goal kick we don't get involved okay. if a throw in is given the wrong way we don't get involved um, we only get involved in those those key incidents if it does lead to a goal we can go back to that position and make a closer inspection of whether or not it was handball and if we feel it was and if we feel it was part of that attacking phase of play then yes that will be uh, that will be rectified with a free kick to the opposing team this relationship between the video assistant referee and the referee on the field how are you instructing your referees to work with each other and what sort of power does the referee on the field have to maybe even overrule the video assistant referee? Or is that a possibility? Yeah, I mean, the referee on the field has ultimate responsibility for, for controlling the game um, and ultimate authority. So he or she makes the final decision. Mm-hmm. Nothing's changed there. And we're also saying to our guys, look, you know, go out and referee the game as normal. Don't don't even consider the fact that the VAR is there before you make the decision. Mm-hmm. Make the decision as you normally would. The VAR only comes into play once the decision has been made. And the VAR is checking for a clear and obvious errors in some 
certain circumstances. Mm-hmm. So we don't want the referee to be thinking, well, I've got a safety net of a VAR behind me, so I can not give this or not give that. And no, you know, we want our officials to make good decisions on the on the field of play. If the VAR gets very little use because the referee is making great calls, then that's wonderful, you know. And um, we we don't want our referees to change the way they they handle the game to referee the game. Um, the relationship will be one whereby there won't be uh, a great deal of communication between the the guys. The VAR is there to check the plays that, that need checking, and the referee knows that those checks are taking place. Some sometimes we'll hear the VAR speak to the referee, asking them to maybe hold the play while they complete a check we spoke, mm-hmm. spoke about it earlier or they will say okay check complete meaning that's fine or they will say I recommend a review and at that point the referee on the field chooses to accept the review or not mm-hmm. it's their call if they say no I had a perfect view of that I know exactly what I saw I'm happy with the call they don't have to t- accept the review mm-hmm. knowing that they've had um, a colleague who's well trained check a situation on video I imagine more than likely the referee will accept the, re- the recommended review and take a look at the screen themselves. But again, they take ultimate authority for that decision to accept the review or not. And also they take this, the responsibility for the final decision. So again, the authority definitely rests with the, the on-field referee. Uh, a bit like if, a, you know, if a, an assistant referee um, indicates to the ref that he thinks a certain tackle should be worth a red card rather than a yellow card, and the referee thinks, no, I'm, I'm confident I saw a yellow card, They'll make their decision based on what, what they feel, what they saw. I guess the only slight difference with VAR is that the video assistant referees had a chance to see it more than once from different angles. So there's less likelihood of the VAR being mistaken as to what they've seen compared to an, a, uh, an assistant referee who's had right. one chance to see it from one angle. Okay. Uh, on a previous podcast, uh, listeners heard my interview of Don Garber, the MLS commissioner from down at the South by Southwest Festival in Texas recently. And he had brought up that one of his owners had heard about the protocol for, from IFAB for VAR and that it prevented in-stadium video replays of the actual play that was in dispute. Uh, and th- this owner was disappointed, I guess, because he thought that would be providing some information and potentially entertainment for the people yeah. in the stadium. Is that part of IFAB's rules that you can't show the replay that's being reviewed in the stadium or is that not part of it yeah we're still working on on the the entire communication set really uh going forward about exactly what's going to be communicated on the big screen what's going to be announced for example um as it stands at the moment certainly when a review is undertaken an announcement will be made by the pa to the to the uh, stadium audience to say that the play is under review and that will be followed by a further announcement of what the outcome was. Mm-hmm. Um, and that information will come from within the video operations room where the VAR is. There'll be an assistant VAR who's uh, helping to, to communicate that to the, to the audience. Mm. My understanding is that whilst the review is taking place, there'll be no video replay shown on the screen. Mm. Um, but post the decision, uh-huh. post the decision, then a replay can be can be shown. Oh, good. Post the decision afterwards, yet to be finalised. But we're not going to see a situation where we can see what the VAR is looking at at the time. Right. Post the post the play, there'll be something uh, shown. And I, and I also believe that the broadcasters will be made aware of which angle was used to hmm. come to the definitive decision. Nice. That's where I think we are at the moment. I was at the baseball. Uh, this week uh, in Yankee Stadium, mm. my first experience with baseball, and nice. uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. And there was one, there was one video replay, 
and um, we could see the on the screen we could see the the uh, the, the situation that was under review um, as it, I guess as it was being reviewed yeah. uh, I wasn't exactly sure what was happening but uh, um, <laughs> but um, but we could see that on there I don't think that'll be the case in 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 soccer I think we'll we'll see maybe a, a screen a holding screen that says the play is under review there'll be an announcement what the outcome was uh, and then I, I believe that the the angle which shows the the, the definitive decision will be offered up to the broadcasters and and then potentially played on the big screen at post decision. Okay. For you, what are still the outstanding elements that need to be worked out for what you're doing with pro referees, with MLS, between now and a few months from now when you go live in official games? It's a good question. And it, it occupies my, my time, obviously, um, at the moment. My, my aim is to prepare our guys um, as much as they possibly can. My, I guess my reputation's at stake, so we need to make sure that they are, they are uh, absolutely prepared. I guess it's, it's building their confidence using the system. Mm-hmm. Um, even the very best referees are finding themselves, I guess, out of their comfort zone. They're doing something quite different to what, they, what they've done for years and years on the pitch. They've been asked to look at games on video screens, on TV screens, sorry, um, choosing the best angles, choosing the best speeds, um, making sure that they communicate clearly to the referee on the field as well about their their, their findings. Um, so certainly try to expose the guys to as much time as possible at the at the VOR or within the VOR, the video operations room. Mm-hmm. Um, just making sure that they feel comfortable and confident to to deal with what they see. I need to make sure that, of course, they've got a, a total and full grasp of the protocol, what it does and doesn't do, and. I guess the challenge is because of the subjective nature of the sport, we all know it is a subjective sport, um, trying to recognise what is a clear and obvious error. Um, yeah. you know, these are referees who come together every two weeks. They, they discuss situations, even amongst a high-performing group of officials. And, and I worked within the Premier League group for, for 11 years. We would sometimes be split on decisions. We would look at handball calls, for example, within our meetings. Uh, over in England and we, we could sometimes be split in the group but we'd, we'd talk it through and we'd, we'd try to come to a consensus on many many situations we could mm-hmm. but there would still be somewhere we had difference of opinion and, and so trying to work out what is clearly and obviously wrong is, is, is quite important I need to get them to take away their refereeing hat in terms of necessarily the best decision but, but recognise whether it's a clearly wrong decision yeah. um, so that's some work we're doing um, we've, we've come off the back of a really successful 10-day uh, tournament in in Texas at Generation Adidas. Um, we've also had some pre-season games as well. We had 34 pre-season games, which mm. were uh, live live pre-season games where the VAR was interacting with the, the on-field referee. Um, going forward, we have some more USL games before the go-live date for MLS, and we have some offline testing as well for in MLS stadiums, whereby, mm-hmm. although there's no actual interaction between the VAR and the referee, we'll have somebody in the VAR position dealing with the situations as though they were live. Right. So that's really useful for us as well. Um, here in the USA um, and Canada, the, the referees get together every two weeks hmm. and discuss situations. We'll be having some VAR input at some of those some of those camps whereby the the uh, partners that we're bringing in to make VR work, the software providers, the technicians, the radio communications people, they'll be coming together and during those those camps we'll be we'll be dealing with some situations on video and and, and putting some guys under pressure, some time pressure, 
We need them to be accurate, but we need them to make a judgment on what they can see and how they would communicate it. And then we're looking to get the, the officials together uh, in the summer for what will essentially be a five-day seminar on VAR, specifically honing their skills before we go live. Mm. We'll bring in some players, we'll create some situations, we'll have classroom sessions, we'll have role plays. We'll do a whole suite of, of things to try to make sure that our guys are as prepared as possible when the goal live date comes in the second half of the season. No stone will be unturned. unturned. We'll... we'll We'll be able to give reassurances to the to the U.S. soccer public that you know the guys have been professionally and thoroughly trained to make this as successful as possible. Understanding is quite a challenging project, and uh, you know it's it's a bit of an unknown at the moment. Nobody's seen how it's worked in other countries yet, but we're confident we'll give it a really good shot. Am I wrong in thinking this is one of the most significant changes we've seen in the sport, maybe even in our lifetimes? Yeah, for sure, Grant, and, and that's. I think that's part of what attracted me to the role, to be honest. Uh, you know, I wanted to be part of the conversation, not just on you know watching from outside. And uh, uh, undoubtedly, it is one of the most significant um, innovations in, in, in sports officiating, in, in soccer officiating, yeah. anyway. Um, you know, w- when when the laws of the game were written up back in the, the late 1800s, not that much has changed. You know, the referee at the moment has some tools to help him control the game. He's got a whistle and a red and yellow card and. And his personality, and and, uh, and and the team of officials around him, but you know, not not much has changed over the years. We've seen the advent of, of sports science in the preparation of our officials. We've seen the use of radio comms between the officials for the last ten years or so. We've had, we've seen officials with flags that uh, you know, connect to, the, to a receiver on the referee's arm, so he doesn't miss a flag anymore when it's raised for offside, for example. So we've seen some small steps. Um, and we've undoubtedly seen our referees become more professional in their their, their approach, but but this is this is pretty significant. I mean, this will this will uh, not change the way the game's officiated because, like I've said earlier, we're, we're saying to our guys guys don't change the way you officiate, but it's going to obviously you know affect the way that decisions are reviewed, and and it's hopefully going to it's not going to solve everything. It's not going to mean that everybody will agree with every decision in the post-match analysis mm-hmm. on TV or in column inches in newspapers and on websites, but hopefully it will drastically reduce the, the number of real key match errors. That's, that's the intention. I had seen a story in the New York Times a couple of years ago by Sam Borden where he was, this was when Goal Line Technology was being adopted, and I think it was a German company that was in charge of it, had won the right to do it. And they said that even at that time, they had the technology to do offside review with electronics. Mm-hmm. Now we're finally going to see with VAR offside being reviewed with the video, but do you think that might be a next step realistically to have the same type of technology that went into goal line technology being used for offside review? Yeah, it's a possibility. Uh, I know there's some companies working on that um, in terms of tracking players and uh, establishing whether they are in an offside position. Um, and bear in mind, offside is is um, quite a complex part of the laws of the game. And, and for example, the arms of a player aren't considered in the calculation of offside. So, mm-hmm. you know, the the software would need to be able to recognise the difference between a head and an arm in terms of the position of the player, because we don't consider arms from any of the players when we're dealing with offside position. Um, and also, it's not only about the factual matter of whether you're offside or not in some cases. In some mm-hmm. cases, it's about whether or not you interfere with an opponent, even 
though you don't play the ball or touch the ball. So uh, again, there is an element of judgment yeah. necessary by the team of match officials. I hear people say things like, you know, well, if you if you're offside, you're offside, you know, and if you're not. You know, if you're not interfering with the the, the the play or the opponents, what are you doing on the pitch? That's a, a really old-fashioned <laughs> view that I've heard often stated by some people. Um, but that's not true. I mean, if, if you imagine, a, just imagine a scenario for, just indulge me for a moment. Um, you know, maybe a, a wide player goes past four players near the uh, near the touchline in, in a in a wing old winger's position. He gets to the goal line and cuts the ball back with a beautiful cross to us to a. A centre forward who was running in at pace, leaps like a salmon and powers the ball into the top corner with his head. Yeah, as soon as that ball comes forward, the winger who is still on the goal line, having beat five men and pulled it back, as soon as that ball comes forward, he's in an offside position. Right. Yeah. The defence are, 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 are not as deep as what he is. He's got past those those defenders. He's got to the goal line. He's pulled it back. As soon as that ball comes forward from that header, he's in an offside position. But do you want that goal ruling out? Because a player who's 40 yards away near the corner flag is an offside. Of course you don't want right. that ruling out. Nobody wants that ruling out. So, you know, it's nonsense to say that, you know, if you're on the pitch, you're interfering. You're not in terms of offside. So we need we need the assistant referee to make a, a judgment. We need him to make a, uh, a judgment of whether that player who's pulled the ball back, whether he's interfering with any opponents at that time. And clearly he's not in that situation. But but the closer he gets towards the goal, maybe he starts to. Maybe maybe he starts to interfere with the goalkeeper's line of vision, for example. So, you know, I'm not sure that technology would be able to calculate yeah. those aspects. Yeah. It could maybe tell you if somebody's in an offside position or not, but there's more to offside than that. That might be useful. Okay. It might be a starting point. Right. I.e., yeah, well... To make the judgment of interfering with an opponent, you need to know, is he offside in the first place? You know, And the second question is irrelevant unless we know if he's right. in an offside position. So, yeah, maybe it could help. Huh. I'm told that there's some good technology out there that, that might be able to assist. And I'm sure that IFAB, you know, they're going to look at this VAR uh, experimental period and they're going to make an assessment. They've said by 2018, no later than 2019 is what they've said. Hmm. Um, and I'm sure they'll look back on it and assess how successful it's been and hopefully it will be successful we're investing a lot of time and effort and energy here in the USA to make it successful and they will look back on it and decide yep whether it's um, brought a a net benefit to the game and if it has great it'll be here to stay and then they'll look at other aspects that they can bring in to enhance it and see how they can develop the protocol further what do you think are the chances that we will see VAR in World Cup 2018 Really good question. Um, I think, I, I think obviously the the way that it, that it's implemented in this early stage in domestic tournaments and domestic leagues in Australia, here in the US, uh, in Bundesliga, in um, the uh, the start of their season in August, um, I think they'll leave the decision late. Okay. Um, but I think as it stands at the minute, there seems to be a, a real desire for it to be implemented there. Mm. And, you know, let's hope it is, because if it is, it means we've done our job well here and that it's uh, it's worked well in these important leagues. Mm. And uh, FIFA have the confidence to put it into their tournament as well. And, you know, again, we're confident it'll be, it'll be a successful addition. Um, yep. So my fingers are crossed that we'll see it in Russia 2018. You retired as a referee in 2014. You still look to be in pretty good shape here uh sitting across from you enough to run 90 minutes um did you have to retire based on age rules or what led to your deciding to retire as a referee 
Yeah, I, I didn't have to retire. Um, I was 43 back in 2014. Um, so at the time when I retired, the age limit for the international panel was 45. Okay. Although more recently that's that's been taken away. Um, they've mm. taken the age limit away. But but when I retired, it was still in force. Mm. It was 45, um, which precluded me from going to the next World Cup in Russia, 2018. I would have been 47 by then. And I'd, I'd been to two World Cups. I'd been to two European Championships. I'd been to several other FIFA tournaments, under-20s, under-17s, um, a couple of Confederations Cups. Uh, I'd been on the Premier League for 11 years, done 300 games there. I, I just felt I was right. it was right for me for a new challenge. I felt that I wanted to go out at the top. I could sense that I wasn't going to get any better as a referee, I didn't think. Um, and... My body was okay. It was creaking a little bit, but um, but yeah, I could have I could have you know forced it to go on for a little bit longer. But my head was was ready for a change. Huh. I just I could see there was other challenges that I wanted to take on. Um, and when you've been around a long time, you know, particularly domestically, I mean, I, I found the Premier League was the harder of the the competitions I was involved in. Hmm. Um, I was enjoying the Champions League. I was enjoying the international stuff. But uh, but yeah, the Premier League was becoming more 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 of a challenge. Why? And I think familiarity breeds contempt. I, th- I think that huh. I've been around a long time. I'd refereed the top teams well over thirty times each, um, and I just felt that yeah, I'd probably lost a little bit of the the hunger um, to go out there and do it again and do it again and do it again, and, and was ready to just test myself in another way and. Uh, and was keen to get out at the top as well, and and to go out at a World Cup in Brazil um, in 2014. My final ever competitive game was Brazil against Chile, in the, in Belo Horizonte. Yeah, it was, it was a nice time to go. You realize though that MLS fans at a certain point here are going to want you to call your own number and put yourself out on the <laughs> field uh, for a game. No chance. Well, I know you said that I look fit, but I, I've trained with the guys here. I am miles behind them. I mean, you don't realize how much your fitness levels go down, and they're they're uh, they're way, way ahead of I of the place I am. But uh, no, I've got no desire to get out there. I'm quite happy to just share my experience on the sidelines. I, I had a few more questions, and obviously we're talking about present tense stuff right now. But how did you get into refereeing in the first place? Yeah, good question. Because you know, when I was seven or eight, I, didn't, I had no ambition to become a ref. I mean, I don't know many. <laughs> Many young kids who do, but uh, uh, and I wanted to be a I wanted to be a player. I mean, I, I played as a kid. I wanted to be a, a World Cup winning captain for England. That was the the ambition. I, you know, obviously yeah. I didn't realize how hard that would be to achieve being, being an Englishman to win the World Cup. But uh, <laughs> um, that was my uh, that was my ambition. And um, no, I, I tried hard, and I was okay. I was okay, but I wasn't I wasn't the player that I'd hoped I would be. You know, and yeah. uh, that, that, that sort of like that realization dawned on me at the age of about. 16 or 17 and uh, my dad my dad had become a referee he he, he was a, a, a like a regional player and he he coached um, a local team as well um, who played on a Sunday morning recreational football and uh, quite often the referee wouldn't turn up or there wasn't one assigned because there was a shortage back in the late 1960s and uh, he he would step in he would step in and referee the game and I think he quite liked it. He enjoyed it and thought, yeah, yeah I'm going to get into this. And he got himself qualified and got involved in the local referee scene and then went into the you know the higher levels, never made hmm. it to the professional game. But I'd grown up around my dad being involved in refereeing and, uh, again, didn't really have that many ambitions. But um, when I was about 16, my dad said to me, look, he said, you know, you're not going to make it as a football. Have you thought about taking up refereeing? Because, you know, you're... You're a tall guy. You can impose yourself on the pitch. You've got a good understanding of the game. You've been around football, yeah. you know, watching and playing, you know, uh, so far throughout your life. And um, 
at first I thought to myself, you know, I'm not interested in that because when I think about referees in my mind's eye, they're all bald old men, which is what they seemed to be when I was a kid. Uh, and it's what I've become later, Grant, you know. But uh, um, but I was, I was 17 at the time and I can remember thinking, you know, it might be nice to have some younger people involved. I thought it might it might make me stand out being a young ref. Yeah. Um, and um, I, I spoke to a, a friend from school and said, look, you know, do you fancy going for a referee course? Now, it might be something that we find interesting but also you know it was an opportunity to earn um, a few pounds refereeing local football as well you know and I was studying and and uh, you know therefore if you if you uh, a bit of extra cash would have come in handy as well so I decided to give it a go I passed a six-week course hmm. um, so we 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 went along at 7 p.m. one evening to this place and we, we learned about laws one, two, and three. Then the next week we learned about laws four, five, and mm-hmm. six. It was very, very sort of like, like school and uh, not that exciting actually. But I persevered and, and on, the, on the 19th of December 1989, I passed my refereeing qualification, my first ever one. I'd never blown a whistle in my life. Wow. But I, was, I passed the exam and was given a license to, to referee a game. And it was a bit like. Um, you know, being given a, a license to, to drive without ever being behind the wheel of a car, just by. In England, we've got something called the Highway Code. In the US, I'm sure you've got something similar, like a, a book that, that, that you know, in there is all the pictures of the street signs and that yeah. sort of thing. It's, it's a bit like reading that, <laughs> passing an exam on the Highway Code, and then being allowed to drive. And so I went out and refereed my first game about three weeks later, and and didn't really have a clue what I was doing, but I knew the laws of the game. Um, but but when I passed that exam on the 19th of December. 1989. I suppose looking back, it was inevitable that somebody who was alive and well that night, somewhere in the world, was going to go on to referee the World Cup final in 2010. It, it turned out to be me. I mean, <laughs> this, this is this. The refereeing has, has opened up some amazing opportunities for me within a sport that I love, mm-hmm. um, a sport that was never good enough to play at a, a high level, mm-hmm. but you know, through perseverance and passion and dedication, um, yeah, I, I managed to, to carve a career out took a long time from starting out when I passed that exam to making it onto the English Premier League as a referee took 13 years Mm. so I've done a lot of hard yards all over the place doing local level football and going through various steps taking a lot of knocks and you need to be resilient as a ref you really do you know it's it's, it's, that's the the one thing I would say referees need more more than anything else is is strong um, self-belief and resilience Um, and uh, I would recommend anybody to give it a go because it's it's a satisfying thing to be involved in. If you love the sport, um, you want to stretch yourself. It's a great feeling when a game goes well, and you know that you've you've contributed in a positive way. Now, in 2010, you refereed the UEFA Champions League final. You also refereed the World Cup final. What is that feeling like when you first learn that you've gotten? that assignment whether it's the Champions League final or the World Cup final and how are you informed both great feelings as you can imagine Grant um, very different ways that I got to know about those two games um, so if I take the Champions League final first um, that was an assignment made by UEFA mm-hmm. and that was a phone call that I received the day after the second leg of the semi-finals had been played hmm. so when the finalists had been uh, decided on right. those semi-finals the finalists in 2010 were uh, Bayern Munich and Inter Milan, yeah. and I received a phone call. I was I was actually driving. I was driving to a to a school to referee a, a college game mm-hmm. um, involving like U16s, 
under 16 players and, and I received a phone call and took the call hands free of course on the, on, the, on the car and I was told by the head of refereeing at UEFA that I'd been selected to referee the Champions League final which is like the most amazing <laughs> phone call to receive but then I was told but you can't tell anybody for, for, for sort of like four weeks wow um, so I refereed that game that uh, under 16 game that night with a huge smile on my face and nobody realised why but but I knew I'd got a chance as well on that one because it was in the in the time when Premier League teams were doing so well mm. in Champions League football. Obviously, that's not quite been been the case in the last few years. But we, we had a, a period between 2005 and 2009 where uh, English Premier League teams made the final every mm. year. Um, so 2010 was the first year for six years whereby no English teams have made the final. And if you've got an English team in the final, then an English referee can't be involved. And right. So I, I knew I'd got a chance, um, mm. but you, you didn't allow yourself to believe it's going to happen until you get the call so that was a great feeling and I've got to say the oh, yeah, it's just an amazing amazing game to be involved in it was 2010 was the first time the Champions League had been moved to a Saturday night right. um, rather than a Wednesday night so it kind of like it changed the feeling in the city really in Madrid Madrid a wonderful place to be it was towards the end of May it was a nice warm evening the fans had, had been around the city all day Friday and Saturday and we had a walk around the city on the Friday afternoon and the fan zones were open and all the fans from Italy and Germany were there an amazing place to be really and the Bernabeu Stadium in Madrid is a real cathedral of, of football um, beautiful place to, 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 to work and um, and yeah and, and as you come out of the dressing rooms in the Bernabeu Stadium, you go onto like a landing at the top of 23 steps. And I walk down these 23 steps to the bottom. And as you, as you walk out onto the pitch through the, the little bit of a, of a tunnel at the bottom of those steps, um, they, they put like a red carpet out for the players to walk along. I walked along the carpet and there was a like a podium so so high, maybe, you know, um, you know, maybe a, a metre high with nothing on it and as I got closer it was all, just off the pitch as I got closer from within up came the European Cup the big silver trophy yeah. with the big ears oh, wow. and, and I could see my face in the European Cup and I thought wow I mean, it's just amazing <laughs> you're trying to stay focused on the game of course you know, you've know, got a huge game to referee and you know, you prepared yourself properly but you just allow yourself to, to just think for a moment you know, about the journey you've been on and, and you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great feeling to be involved in one of those showpiece games Big responsibility as well. You know, this is a lot of work that these teams have put in to get there. Right. There's a lot of responsibility from UEFA to deliver the game successfully. Um, obviously, in the days before video assistant referees, you know, you, you could make an error that wouldn't be rectified, a clear right. and obvious error. And that was always something that was kind of like in the back of your mind. Um, hence the reason that, I guess, referees, knowing that VAR will be in place on such games, they won't be able to relax, but they'll know that it's much more difficult to make a clear and obvious error. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the crux of the matter, isn't it? It's about you know, avoiding those match-changing incidents in big games that can be rectified fairly quickly. For the World Cup, um, it was uh, quite different. The announcement was made only three days before the final. Mm-hmm. Again, it was made after the semi-finals had been played on the Tuesday and the Wednesday, the week before the, the Sunday final. On the Thursday, we were called together in a, in a hotel room in Pretoria. And at 6pm on the dot, um, one of the rep, uh, referee committee members from FIFA went to the front of the room, opened a, an envelope, it was almost like, like the Oscars, and uh, <laughs> he pulls out the, uh, the card, and luckily he pulled out the right, uh, the right name, uh, unlike what happened here a few, uh, few weeks ago. But he, um, he read out, um, first of all, he read out two games. He read out match number 63, which is the third place right. game, followed by match number 64, the final. And... 
in that room were were nine referee teams led by nine referees yeah. and their two assistants and that was a much smaller number than what had arrived in Pretoria f- uh, six weeks earlier because mm-hmm. um, 20 referee teams had been sent home for various reasons I mean yeah. for example some had been sent home because their national teams had made it through to the later stages so because of the potential conflict of interest they were sent home right. or some had been uh, released because they'd made big mistakes in games so they would be released for that reason. Or some were just seen as not maybe um, having the experience to go through to the later stages. And, you know, the, the, it was hoped that they would be seen at the next World Cup, but they'd done their bit. And the, the guys who were kept were the ones who had no conflict because of the teams that were left in the tournament, the ones who'd done well so far in that tournament, the ones that were experienced. And, and we were lucky enough to be in that group of nine. And, and two of those referees had refereed the semi-finals. They'd come back from those. So it was really unlikely they would get a final and, and the semi-finals. So mm-hmm. realistically, you know, you're looking around the room thinking, well, you've got a one in seven chance of becoming a World Cup final referee. And, mm-hmm. and you don't know what name's in that envelope. And you know that there's two names going to be refereeing these last two games. And, and you also know the third place games yeah it's a showpiece game it's an important game and it would be a nice game to be appointed to but you know that if you get the third place game you're not going to be announced as the final referee because that's played the night after you also know that five referees in that room are not going to get a game at all Mm. so you're hoping your name is going to be on on the piece of paper alongside match number 64 the world cup final um but of course you know again you don't really allow yourself to 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 imagine that too much because you, you could be setting yourself up for, for a fall and, and match number 63 was announced and um, that was refereed by um, uh, a guy called Benito Archundia from Mexico mm-hmm. um, uh, quite a well-known CONCACAF referee mm-hmm. and um, he was assigned to that game and match number 64 was announced and the guy said match 64 the Netherlands against Spain Soccer City referee Webb England and they were the words and, and, and I guess those words went pretty much changed my life because yeah. you know you, you, you're kind of like known as, as a World Cup final referee from that point onward doesn't mean you're, you're the best referee in the world um, it means that obviously you know you've had a great tournament it means that FIFA trusts you with the the biggest game of all and um, it makes you a really lucky guy you know a really privileged guy it's a great responsibility it was a tough game but um, but a great responsibility to be uh, to be handed that game Looking back at that game, are you disappointed in the way the Netherlands decided to approach that game in a very heavy-handed way against Spain? Yeah, yeah I was disappointed with the, with the type of game it was. Um, and make no mistake, we'd prepared professionally, both physically and psychologically and technically as well. Um, we'd had a great uh, tournament up to that point. Me and my two assistants, th- th- don't ever underestimate the value of, of assistant referees. Um, they can absolutely... Um, they can they can spoil a referee's day by by not doing the job properly, but they can also make the referee's life so much easier. I had two great assistant referees who were very skilled at what they did, and we made a great team. and And we we performed well in that tournament up to that point. And we people said to me, "This will be a beautiful game played between two teams who know how to play the game beautifully." You know, the the Spanish were in their pomp. I mean, you know, yeah. playing this. Tiki tacky type football, which was you know pleasing on the eye, um, played by high technicians. But the Dutch could also play in, in a way, you know, going all the way back to Johan Cruyff and total football, you know, and they'd hung on to many of those values. And we could see the way that they could play the game as well, both in that tournament and in, in the build-up to it. Um, and then we were presented with this really physical encounter that we 
Yeah, I'd thought it might not be as beautiful as what people were saying this game. Finals often aren't when you've got right. that much at stake. But I never, I'll be honest, I never anticipated it being as difficult as that. And yeah, and, and, and the play was pretty physical. And I suppose, that, you know, I've, uh, looking back, I'm disappointed that it was that type of, of game. Um, funnily enough, um, when I retired in 2014, I, uh, I became technical di- director in the Premier League referees uh, for PGMOL, who run the refereeing over there and then I went and took a job as director of refereeing in Saudi Arabia mm-hmm. and my office was next door to a guy called Bert van Marwijk who was the national, yeah. <laughs> national team coach for Saudi Arabia who was the coach for the Netherlands on that particular day and uh, it was just interesting how our, our paths brought us together again but uh, I know Bert, Bert has been quoted as saying you know that wasn't, that wasn't a plan by the Dutch um, mm. it wasn't a tactic um, it was something that happened um, for whatever reason um, but, uh, but of course it made my life that much more difficult and uh, yeah looking back looking back yeah, could we have done better in certain circumstances yes yes I could um, was it a, would it have been a challenging game for any match official for sure it would was I uh, was I trying to strike the balance between controlling the game trying to allow the game some space to breathe where possible yes I guess I was um but yeah, I, I didn't watch the game back for a full week. I, I came back to the UK and, and, and watched the game with a, a refereeing colleague of mine from the Premier League. And, and it, you know, it, it was a better game than I remembered at the time. At the time, mm-hmm. it, was, it was really a case of trying to maintain my focus, stay concentrated, pick the right decisions, um, control the game to the best of my ability. And I think we, ju- we just about got through, but it was, it was undoubtedly the hardest game of my career. 14 yellow cards, as I recall, yeah. in that game, uh, more than twice as many as had ever been given in a previous World Cup final. If you were the VAR ref for that game, would you have suggested any changes on any of the calls? That's a rhetorical question. <laughs> yes, um, undoubtedly. I mean, I mean, and people will talk to me until the day that I die about um, about the uh, the Nigel De Jong tackle on 25 minutes and. Yeah, for sure, it's a red card offence, isn't it? Um, and for me to sit here and say otherwise would, you know, people would question my my judgment as a as a, as a match official or as a as a you know um, a referee coach, I guess. And yeah, um, it, it was a situation that I didn't have a clear view of. Um, the 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 ball was bouncing. Alonso stooped a little bit to head it as De Jong came into him, and I was looking through the back of Xabi uh, Alonso uh, from a a little bit of an angle and didn't see, quite see the point of contact. I knew it was late and I knew it was forceful, but I didn't quite see the type of contact. And, you know, this is 25 minutes into the World Cup final. I need a certain level of, of, of certainty to, to give a call, I guess, at that point. And do I, did I, for want of a better word, did I bottle a red card? No, I, I saw that as not enough for a red based on the evidence I was given. And, Went with a yellow card, and that was the that was, I guess, always um, in my mind. Without in the absence of further information, it wasn't like, oh, that's a red card, but I'm going to show him yellow. No, not at all. It was mm, that's that's a poor tackle, but I don't see enough for a red. Yeah. When you see it back on TV, yeah, it's a clear red card offence. The studs go high into the chest. He bends his leg as he gets there. He doesn't maintain a straight leg, but still, that type of contact should be should be sanctioned with a red card and, and a VAR would undoubtedly have said um, I'm recommending a review and then I would look at that at the side of the screen and say yep thank you for that after after one view with the best angle I would send him off 
when you're watching a game, if I were watching that Real Madrid Bayern Munich game with you the other day, what are you like to watch a game like that with? Are are you like any other fan, or are you focusing a little more on the the officiating? Yeah, it's, it's it's a good question because it's it's tough to just watch it as a fan. I mean, part partly because I, I know the guys so well. So Victor Kassaira from Hungary refereed the game, yeah. um, and uh, I know Victor really well. And um, on the other game that night, which was in um, Monaco, Dortmund. Yeah. Sorry, it was in Monaco, wasn't it, yeah. against Dortmund? Um, Damir Scamini was refereeing the game, and he's a good friend of mine as well. So, you know, we, we were obviously part of the refereeing family. I know, I know the guys well. I'm desperate for it to go well for these guys. And um, I guess you can't help but look at what they're doing. I try to enjoy and admire the football on show, and some of the games are amazing. I mean, I've not had many, I've not had many occasions where I've, I've felt to myself, I wish I was out there on the pitch. I enjoyed what I did. I was grateful for the opportunities. I loved nearly all of my time as, a, as an active official. But when you see, for example, when you see the game when Barca come back to win the game 6-1 against Paris Saint-Germain, yeah. you can't help but think, wow, can you just imagine the atmosphere there? You imagine the place will be bouncing and you're on the pitch. And you know, yeah, There's a few occasions when I see Champions League quarterfinals, semifinals, um, yeah, they're the times I think I wish I was out there. And um, I was lucky enough to do to referee three Champions League semi-finals. In fact, two were Bayern against Real Madrid. Mm-hmm. Um, amazing places to be. Um, but yeah, I tend to watch it through 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 the prism of, 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 of a referee rather than as a fan. If I'm watching an England game, I'm a little bit different because I obviously want England to win. Um, I follow a, a team in England in the Championship called Rotherham United, Rotherham at bottom of the Championship by a long way at the moment, which hurts. Um, yeah, when I'm watching. Uh, my teams play then yes of course I watch it as a, very much as a fan um, I've even been known to you know maybe just uh, shout at the referee once or twice but um, <laughs> that's the passion that, that, that football evokes but yeah I can't help but watch it as a ref Lastly how long do you want to be here in the United States? Long as possible um, whilst I'm adding value um, I have a three year contract uh, my role is head of video assistant refereeing of course I'm trying to utilize all my experience and share that with the guys you know I'm joining joining a, a strong team here um, with pro I've known the general manager Peter Walton for a long time we were actually roommates when we uh, mm. we made it onto the Premier League list together in 2003 so mm. we we um, we've known each other a long time I know I know what he's doing here I know the the team is put together and and I'm delighted to have a chance to contribute to it and the thing that struck me since I arrived here on the 1st of March is just how how vibrant the the soccer scene is, um, you know, both at the top level here in the MLS office, um, and at the stadiums that I've been to. I've been to seven or eight games now, um, mm. but also, um, you know, at other levels as well. I, I arrived in Dallas last week for the uh, Generation Adidas, and between the airport and the the um, the Toyota Soccer Center in Frisco, mm-hmm. I saw so many pictures being occupied by kids playing football, watched by lots of parents and coaches. Um, and the future's bright, isn't it? Undoubtedly. Um, and, you know, I'm just, uh, I'm just delighted to be a part of it, really. And, um, and um, it's an exciting time to be here in the States if you're involved in soccer. We're excited to have you be a part of it. Howard Webb, thanks for speaking to me. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Howard Webb, as well as everyone at Digital Media and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, there are other great new and archived episodes you can check out including my recent interviews with John Strong, Vicente Lizarazu, Becky Sauerbrunn, Paolo Maldini, and Tim Howard. Please, if you like the pod, 
Tell your friends, subscribe, and review it on Apple Podcasts. It really does help the cause if you do. See you next time. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network? The number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.